Beginning this morning in the book of Amos, two years before the earthquake, Amos chapter 1, specifically looking at verses 1 and 2. Amos was a man, and Amos is a book, but not just any book, the very Word of God, as surely as is the Gospel of John and the book of Genesis, the Word of the Lord came to the prophet Amos. Before we get started this morning on this journey through a a short book that preaches like a big one, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you saying, Lord, that we love you and we fear you. Lord, and we pray that you would increase both our love and our fear for your name. Lord, as we look to these words, we pray that it would be rightly divided. And that in it we would see your heart for your holiness and your glory. Lord, your hatred for sin and the love that you have for your people. Lord, we pray that you would guide us. That we would rightly divide the word of truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us begin in Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Well, anytime you begin a book, it's necessary to do kind of a quick overview and a little background info to get the context for what we're going to be talking about over the next several months. And when we begin with the book of Amos, named after the prophet Amos, we've got to take just a moment to consider the man of Amos. And I say just a moment because truly there is not a lot to say. Not because he wasn't necessarily a dynamic character and the prophet of God, but just because Scripture does not record a lot about him personally. What we can say is this, is that he was the shepherd by trade. More accurately, if you really look at the Hebrew, he was a breeder of sheep. So he may have been just a little bit more than kind of your run-of-the-mill hired hand, but... He was a guy that was definitely working for his bread. Not only was he a breeder of sheep, but he was a gatherer of the sycamore fruit to be able to take care of the stuff in his charge. He was a working man. And though he would prophesy to the kingdom of Israel, he was not from Israel, but instead was from Tekoa, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem in the very heart of of Judea. He prophesied a contemporary of other great prophets of God. He lived and preached similar messages to men like Hosea, Micah, Jonah, and Isaiah all around the same time in the 8th century BC, both to the kingdom of Judah in the south and to the kingdom of Israel in the north. This would put these men, and Amos in particular, 
prophesying and preaching about 200 years after the death of King David and about 800 years before the birth of Christ. His name, Amos, literally in the Hebrew means burden. And carry a burden he did. As a matter of fact, there were many that he preached to that may have thought him to be the burden. But not much more is known about the man. Just what we see spattered here and there throughout his book, clearly the message was much more important than the messenger. And so let us move on from considering the man of Amos to considering that which God inspired him to preach and to write, the book of Amos. Amos begins in chapter 1, verse 1, with somewhat of a peculiar statement. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel. Now, if you take out that intermediary clause there that tells where he was from and what he was doing when the word came to him, then the beginning of Amos reads like this. The words of Amos which he saw concerning Israel. What the word does not say is the words of Amos and that which he saw concerning Israel. We're not talking about two separate things here as though there was some words that Amos either received or wrote or both, the words of Amos, and then there were these visions, these things that Amos saw. That is not what is being said, but instead a singularity. The words of Amos which he saw concerning Israel. And at this point in time, if you're kind of a thinking person, you may be pondering to yourself, how is it that one can see a word. You speak words, you read words, you hear words. But you don't see words. We would all confess that even when we read the word on the page and see the typeset therein, what we're seeing is nothing more than a very specifically derived code that would indicate to us in our mind what the word actually is. Because I don't know what a word looks like, but it sure doesn't look like W-O-R-D. But this word that came to Amos, this word that became his word, this word is a word that Amos saw. And so before we even get started today, we have to ponder for a moment, how is it that a man can see a word? And the answer is a man can see a word when the word is a person, is a being. John speaks to the same concept in his first epistle. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 through 3, the apostle writes and he says this about his time with Christ. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we look upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. The way that you see a word is when a word is not simply something that is spoken. It is not simply something that is written. It is not simply something that is heard. But when it is something that is alive when it is a person and a being, this word you see. For the same apostle wrote in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And guys, while many people would be shocked to hear this, I tell you today with certainty that everything you read in the book of Amos from chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 9 speaks of nothing less than Jesus Christ. The very word that Amos saw, the very word that Jesus said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you will find eternal life, but they speak about me. And you say, well, pastor, why is it that we might be shocked to hear that Amos is all about Christ? I mean, it's something that we haven't shied away from here at Mount Zion, speaking about the way that all of the Scripture proclaiming the glory of God is speaking about the glory of God manifest in Jesus Christ. We're teaching this kind of stuff in the Old Testament to our children right now. This is not new doctrine at Mount Zion. Why would we be shocked? I think that most people would be shocked because of the content of what Amos saw that is Christ. For indeed, the book of Amos is nothing less than the proclamation of the promise of Jesus Christ, both in judgment and in grace. That is the word, or we should say he is the word that Amos saw. So when did he see it? Because this is a pertinent point. You know, a lot of times when we study our, our, our Bibles, we go to a particular book, we flip to the, the little page in our study Bibles that it's a page or two, it comes before each book, and it's got a basic rundown of kind of all the information you need to know. It talks about the author and who he was. In Amos, the paragraph is short, right? It talks about the date and the setting that it was written in and any kind of maybe interpretive or language challenges that the book has, stuff you need to know, background information. But man, Amos goes out of his way to let you know when he wrote it. It's not just a curiosity. It's not one of those books where we've got to sit around and kind of scratch our heads and pull on our beards and think longingly, pull your glasses down on your nose and debate about whether it was written in this century or that. Man, Amos, right off the bat, wants you to know the context of what he is writing and I would tell you that he does so because the context with Amos is of critical importance. He writes, during the concurrent reign of two 8th century kings, 
of Uzziah and of Jeroboam. He writes specifically during those two concurrent reigns, two years before the earthquake. An earthquake so devastating in its scale, so cataclysmic in its destruction, that it will be used as a reference for the quake that occurs on the day of the Lord itself. Now friends, there have been some bad earthquakes. There's been some horrible earthquakes in China. There's been some horrible earthquakes in South America. There's been some nasty ones in the United States. The San Francisco earthquake was really bad over a century ago, mainly because of the fires that it produced. Thank goodness that nobody was around except for Indians and trappers living in tents when the one hit at New Madrid. If it hit like that again... Now, there wouldn't be any more Memphis. And yet this earthquake that's spoken of is something completely different. It was so cataclysmic that the prophet Zechariah will use it as a reference for the earthquake that comes on the day of the Lord, the day when Christ himself will stand on the Mount of Olives and go out making war. In Zechariah chapter 14, in verses 1 through 5, Zechariah writes and says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. And the Lord will go out, and he will fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. And on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to us all. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all of his holy ones with him. Okay, so check it out. Zechariah is writing about the day of the Lord. Not a day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord. A day that he says is literally like no other. No light, no dark, no cold, no heat, like no other. This is the day that we read about studying Romans chapter 11. This is the day when in a moment of time, because of the faithful suffering of the Gentile church, the Jews will be provoked to jealousy. When Jesus Christ himself splits the eastern sky, rolls it up like a scroll, and comes on the clouds with great glory. This will be the day that they look on him whom they pierced, and God will open for them a fount of mercy and give them a new heart. This is the day when Jew and Gentile together, all the people of God will be saved. And on this day, Jesus doesn't just split the sky and go about his merry way. His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Been there, man. Impressive sight. Looks down 
from the east directly upon the eastern gate to the temple, which the word of God says that Christ himself will use when he enters into his dominion. And when his feet touch that mountain and he walks out for war for the derision of his enemies, it splits it right down the middle. Why? An earthquake so that his people might flee. That they might flee and be saved from the wrath that is about to come forth from him against his enemies. It'll be an earthquake like no one has ever seen. And when the Holy Spirit inspired Zechariah to write about it, he inspired him not to reach back to any old earthquake that happened in the past, but specifically to this one that happened during the reign of King Uzziah and the king of Jeroboam two years after Amos wrote. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records concerning this earthquake that it occurred in conjunction with a sin that King Uzziah committed. Uzziah was a good king as far as kings go. But he did what Paul would later warn the church not to do. He literally outthought his station. He overthought himself. And in doing so, he decided that he was a holy enough guy that he could fulfill both the role of king and priest. And so he entered by force into the temple of God to offer incense upon the altar of incense, though the priest of God protested and for his trouble, God struck him with leprosy for the rest of his life. Now, Scripture doesn't say why the earthquake happened. And whether or not you believe Josephus is certainly up for debate. But though Scripture does not say, it certainly would be fitting with the remainder of the narrative of Amos. Because as important as the context of Amos is, and when it was written and who it was written to, that context is designed to shed light on what Amos saw. And what Amos saw was nothing less than God himself roaring from Zion. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw, Concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. When Isaiah, or when Amos, getting ahead of myself, when Amos saw the word of the Lord to him, what he saw was the Lord himself roaring forth from Zion. 
If you take time to do the word study here, which I think, you know, roar is probably one of those words when you see God doing it that should cause you to pause and take the time to do that sort of thing. When you consider the word for roaring, it speaks not simply to volume or to shouting, and it even comes through in the English. Actually, the the Hebrew is pretty equivalent for the English concept of what roaring is when you really think what it means to roar. It doesn't simply mean being loud or, or shouting so that you may be heard. Instead, there is a very real emotional component to the concept of letting out a roar. Roaring comes from the heart. It comes deep down and from within. It is the expression of something that is very visceral and very real. In Psalm 38, verse 8, this is the King James Version, the psalmist says, I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. Man, the psalmist is talking about the uneasiness that he has and the position that he has found himself. And he says, this disquietening in my heart has caused me to to roar forth, to make this emotive, visceral noise. What we see, what Amos saw from God is not simply the dry response to legalistic transgression. This is not God kind of looking down at the balance sheet and going, well, we've added up your tally and found you lacking. You've committed these sins and you must pay. This is not a dry response. Instead, it is a holy heart that is fierce for his own righteousness. This comes from the depth of his being. If you want to look at the Hebrew, the word for roar defines as this a guttural cry a guttural cry of anguish and longing implying the violent action that will necessarily accompany it now the the word you need to hinge on there is necessarily A guttural cry of anguish and longing implying the violent action that necessarily will accompany it. When God roars, he doesn't bluff. This is not a warning. This is not even a threat. This is a proclamation of intention. Typically, well, as a matter of fact, let's just look in Amos chapter 3 verse 4. He asks some rhetorical questions. Does the lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den when he has taken nothing? Man, these people, especially the shepherd, knew exactly what the roar of a lion meant. And how does a lion roar? Well, Amos asked, Does the lion roar unless there is something for him to prey on? Does the lion roar unless there is something to attack? Do the young cubs, do they roar at the den? If he didn't actually take anything? No, it is the guttural cry and longing implying a violent action that necessarily will accompany it. 
Man, listen, Mount Zion, God, he warns. He exhorts first. Man, he says, do right that you may live, right? And then he warns, though he is required by nothing to do so. Just because he's good, man, he would be completely just and completely righteous to, to, to say, man, this is the law, and then punish accordingly. But, man, we can look at Scripture on Scripture on Scripture. God exhorts you and says, do good and live. God warns people and says, don't do this. Then, let me tell you, God threatens people, and the threat is valid. But, guys, when God roars, it's done. This is coming out of the depth of his heart and he will execute out of the desire of his soul. Typically, as we've seen, it evokes the image of a lion. A fear the shepherd from Tekoa would know only too well, but here it's not the lion roaring, here it's the Lord that roars. And the lion roaring is one thing, and bad enough, but the Lord roaring is quite another. When the Lord roars, his true children come to him trembling. Hosea uses the same imagery. In chapter 11, verse 10, Hosea says, They shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Man, there is a fear of the Lord. (laughs) We don't have time to preach this again. God has a fear that's like no other, friend. The fear of the Lord to the people of God, the fear of the Lord to the children of God, it may send His enemies fleeing and crying out that the rocks may fall on them and hide them from the face of the one who sits on the throne, but that's not what it does to His children. For His children, the Lord has a fear that is not like the fear of this creation and not like the fear of men. It may They may tremble, but it will draw them to Him. It will draw them to Him. Man, when the Lord roars from the west, His children come trembling. Man, the result of the Lord roaring is different than the roar of the lion. His children will come, and guess what? Shepherds will turn profit on you like that. It's exactly what Amos said. In chapter 3, verse 7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to His servant, the prophets. The lion is roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? And when the Lord roars, His children come trembling and humble shepherds turn prophet. We see this imagery throughout the 8th century prophets. In the book of Joel, the Lord roars from Zion at the nations. He roars at the Gentiles. He roars at people like you and me. In Joel 3.16, the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge for His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. The Lord roars from Zion in Joel. And he's a refuge for his people Israel. And his true children come to him trembling. And you better believe that violence will soon follow. Read the rest of Joel. Those nations he's roaring at. It's a bad short deal for them. But in Amos, 
the Lord doesn't roar at the nations. In Amos, the Lord roars at his people Israel. And violence surely will follow. Why? Because of sin. In Amos chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? The Lord God roars from Israel because he has. He roars from Zion at Israel because he has a prey. Because he will take. And what he will take is them. Make no mistake. Just get it into your heads right now. Make no mistake. Amos is a word of judgment and righteous wrath from a God that is offended to the core of his being by sin. And what begins with a roar ends in the necessary violent destruction of the kingdom. Amos chapter 1 verse 2 tells what Amos saw. He saw God roaring from Zion and Israel. Amos chapter 9 verses 8 through 10 records what the Lord will do about it. When it says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face... Sorry... Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, Those who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Why does the Lord roar forth from Zion? Why does it end in this violent action of the destruction of the kingdom of Israel? Because God is holy and God hates sin. God hates sin. Because we have all too often replaced the gospel of Jesus Christ and even the person of Jesus Christ with a caricature of Jesus Christ that's made after our own vain imaginations with bits and pieces that we like kind of sprinkled in instead of taking him as he comes, as Amos saw him. Because of that, I don't think... That I, or that you, or the church at large today appreciates the degree to which God hates sin. 
He hates it. He hates it enough to destroy the kingdom of Israel for it. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. What sin could evoke that kind of righteous judgment? Man, what did they do? Because if you read through here and just give it a cursory reading, you would see all sorts of things that they did, man. They had all sorts of political instability and and governmental unrighteousness. They they trampled over the poor and they ran after false gods and and, and they dealt greedily with one another and all sorts of things that, that are completely apart from the character of God. But by the same token, we can also look at Judah, the kingdom to the south, we can look at the things that David did. We can look at the things that Solomon did. And they were grievous sins that God makes very clear, often with punishment that he despises, and yet they don't get this. Man, what did these people do that would provoke God to such righteous judgment? Well, the reason we did the background on the book is because, as I said, Amos wants you to know the context. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. I want you to consider that at the opening of the book of Amos, it is dated according to the reign of two kings. Two kings. Now, you may not be quite as polished up as you would like to be on your Old Testament history. So you may be asking yourself, what happened to Israel united? I mean, what happened to all Israel setting under the leadership of David, setting under the leadership of Solomon? What what happened to that promise of this kingdom on whose throne there would always perpetually and eternally be one set? What happened to that kingdom? Sin is what happened to that kingdom. Now, I could just paraphrase for you and kind of give you the narrative, but I always feel like the word of the Lord is sweeter than the word of the preacher. And so if you will bear with me once again this morning in a pretty large section of Scripture, I want to consider the division of the kingdom and how it came to be that 200 years after the death of David and 800 years, give or take, before the birth of Christ, we find the kingdom of promise no longer standing under one king, but divided between two houses in the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel. And when we look at this, I want to look at the means by which it happened and then the cause for why it happened, because they're not the same thing. So the means. How did this go down? If you've got your Bibles with me, with you, and you should, then turn to the book of Kings. This is 1 Kings chapter 12. We're going to, be, we're going to begin considering the circumstance when the kingdom was still one. We're going to start with Rehoboam. This is Solomon's son. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 7, Solomon has died and Rehoboam is to become king. And here is the situation. Verse 1, Rehoboam went to Shechem for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. 
And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, we'll get to him in a minute, not the same guys in Amos, as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, now remember this is Solomon's son, your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his yoke on us, and we will serve you. And he said to them, go away for three days and come again to me. And so the people went away. And then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? I mean, you've got a king that's about to come into his reign. And you've had the majority of the kingdom come to him and say, look, things were tough under Solomon, man. The taxes were bad. The conscription was bad. Like, he really kind of weighted us down. Man, if you'll back off this a little bit, man, we will serve you and we will... We will recognize you as, as king. And so the young man goes to the old advisor of his father and says, What do you think? What should I do? Do you think it would show weakness? Do you think it would be wise? What do I do? King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet still alive. How do you advise me to answer these people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them, and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will serve you forever. That sounds like some pretty godly advice to me. He said, listen, king, you want to be king? Go be a servant. You want to be greatest among your people? Be the least. Back off of them a little bit. You're not Solomon in all his glory. (laughs) Back off of them a little bit, and if you do it, they will serve you forever. And so here's the king's response in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men. Young men, listen to me, not a good idea typically. Not a good idea. Listen to the old crusty ones. They know some stuff. That's how they lived long enough to be old and crusty. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And so the king did not listen to the people, for it was a... Oh boy, hang on a minute. I about got too far. So, Rehoboam does the opposite. He takes the the young, hot-headed approach. says, you think my father was tough? Boys, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm king. You know how the people responded? I mean, here's the deal. Whether you like it or not, in secular government, in, in social government, in social government, the power always lies in the hands of the people. No matter what system you're under, if you get enough people, in this day and age, primarily enough of those with their fingers on the trigger, to just walk away and not heed what the ruler says, 
he by default is no longer the ruler. Here's what the people do. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. And so Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. And you got 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. And on this day, because he listened to these young men and decided to play the hot and heavy hand, ten of those tribes said, no thanks, we're going home. Bye. And just walked away. Man, Rehoboam should have listened to the wise counsel of senior men. But he didn't. And it cost him 85% of the kingdom. But I want to warn you not to confuse the means with the cause. Because this very unfortunate political circumstance that you see unfolding before you today is simply the means by which the kingdom was divided. It was not the cause. The cause was God himself. For in verse 15, So the king did not listen to the people For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. The reality is, is the reason that things went down with Rehoboam the way they went down and he didn't listen to good counsel but listened to bad, that he tried to play the heavy hand and got shown his place when all the rest of them just looked at him and said, no thanks, we're out to your tents, O Israel, and left. The reason all of this happened was because this turn of events was specifically ordained by God himself. Now, why in the world would God ordain that his people and the kingdom of Israel be divided? Why would he do that? Sin. Are you starting to get the causality that's occurring here? Why would God roar? Why would God destroy sin? Why would God divide sin? In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 through 13, man, Solomon started well, but he didn't end well. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. And here's the list, and it's quite the tawdry one. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their God. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. And has been often noted possibly a mental condition. He had 700 wives who were... That'd be okay if they were all you, baby. (laughs) Prudence is what that is. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. 
For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, and as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow wholly after the Lord as David his father had done. And then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So here you have the means, Rehoboam, a young and hot-headed man listening to the wrong counsel, political intrigue, all these people kind of coming into their own understanding of collective power and walking away, but all of that is just the means. God orchestrated every bit of this. It was done beforehand. It was ordained because of the sin of Solomon, who God made clear to him that though I've appeared to you twice and warned you not to do these things, you did them anyway, therefore... I will tear the kingdom from your hand. However, in the midst of punishment, there is mercy. I will not do it in your days, not for your sake, but because of the faithfulness of your father. The kingdom will not be ripped from the hand of his son. Instead, it will be ripped from the hand of his grandson. And when I tear it away, I will leave him one tribe for the sake of Jerusalem and so that the promise may be fulfilled that there will be a king that sits on the throne of David forever. And so it was. In the midst of all of these events is this one Jeroboam, soon to become Jeroboam I, the first king of the kingdom of Israel. He was foretold by the prophet Ahijah. See, Jeroboam was a very capable young man, and he had been in the service of Solomon at one point. As a matter of fact, Solomon had found him so capable that he had given him charge over all of the forced labor of the house of Joseph, which was, quite frankly, a big job. He did all of that until his meeting with the prophet of God outside the city one day in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 29 through 33. In verse 29, it says, At that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, he was in Jerusalem working for the king, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. And now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, 
And the two of them were alone in the open country. And then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it into twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I will give you ten tribes." He shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. So here you have Jeroboam, he's a young man, he's very kind of upwardly mobile, he's been put in charge of a whole bunch of the forced labor, he's going to be somebody in the kingdom and he's about his business outside of Jerusalem one day, here comes Ahijah, the prophet of God, he takes off this brand new garment, rips it to shreds, 12 pieces and he says, take 10 of them for yourself, for this is what the Lord God will do because the sin of Solomon and of the people of Israel. Go, man, that's a bad deal if you're a Judean king. It is a bad deal. The Lord is punishing Solomon for all that he has done and all that he has encouraged and all that he has allowed in the United Kingdom. But, friends, all sin is not equal in the eyes of the Lord. And neither is all punishment. For what Jeroboam the first will do makes the sin of Solomon pale in comparison. So here you've got this young man who's just had the prophet of God himself come up to him and go, the word of God is this, take him, here, take him, it's yours. He knows it's coming. He immediately starts undermining Solomon. Solomon gets after him. That's why he ends up getting run off to Egypt because he's afraid for his own life. Because Solomon doesn't tolerate that kind of stuff. Well, he hears that Solomon's dead. He comes back. All of Israel is going down to Rehoboam to make him king. Jeroboam goes with him. He's one of the ones that says, hey, listen, we'll go along with what's going on here, man. May the Lord's will be done. I know what he told me, but, you know, look, man, if you'll lighten our yoke, we'll serve you for the rest of our days. He says, no, my yoke's going to be harder. They all say, forget you. We're out of here. We're going back to our tents. And guess who they make king? Jeroboam, the one who is in charge of all of the forced labor, is now Jeroboam, the first king in Israel. And what Jeroboam finds out real quick is being king is hard. It's been said it's good to be king. Turns out in reality it's real hard to be king. Jeroboam finds that there is great difficulty when trying to maintain a theocracy without the presence of God himself. You see, that's how the kingdom in Israel works. The reason you're king is not because the people chose you. The reason you're king and the manner by which you maintain your reign and your rule is because God chose you. And when the entire politics of the kingdom revolves around the presence of God it's real hard to maintain a theocracy when you don't have the ark of the covenant 
when you don't have the place in the temple where the people go to worship, to sacrifice, to give free will offerings and sin offerings that their sin may be covered. When you don't have the priest that is going in to make intercession between you and God, how do you maintain your kingdom? And so Jeroboam did it like this very pragmatic solution in 1 Kings chapter 12 verse 25 through 29 when Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there he went out from there and built Penuel and Jeroboam said in his heart now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David For this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And so the king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and he sent one he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan and this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one i want you to notice what Rehoboam did because the lord has already charged that Solomon was guilty of idolatry And he was guilty of idolatry on a grand scale. Chemosh and Molech, the abominations of the Ammonites, the abomination of the Moabites, these were the fire gods they threw their infant children into their bonfires for. Solomon propagated idolatry in Israel in a way that no other king after him would because he did it where there had largely been a vacuum of idolatry before and he did it by the thousands and yet he dies and goes to his grave and while the kingdom is torn from his son still the kingdom of Judah remains and yet here we have the Lord roaring from Zion against Israel And he's going to roar because of this. What's the difference? I would submit to you that Jeroboam did something far worse than Solomon. For he did not simply turn to competing gods. He did not simply turn himself to the polytheistic worship of demons. But instead, he intended to replace God with his own vision and version of what he needed the one true God to be. Notice the statement he makes that this, O Israel, is thy God, is thy Elohim. Which one? How do you define him? The one who led you out of Egypt. This is the God 
who brought destruction upon the Egyptians. This is the God who spoke to Moses through the burning bush. This is the God that passed over your sin when the blood of the lamb was on the lintel and the doorpost. This is the God who gave you water from the rock. This is the God that you heard speak from fire on top of Sinai to Moses so that your ancestors begged he would speak to them no more unless they died. This is the same God that Paul will later say is Jesus Christ into whom the redeemed are baptized and he's these two golden calves. And God roars from Zion. Oh, his anger boils for demonic idolatry. You want to see the full cup of his wrath? Replace him with vain visions of your own perceived need and imagination. God wasn't who Jeroboam needed him to be. He was in Jerusalem. His worship was there. His priests were there. That was not politically expedient. This is not going to work out. I need Elohim to be something else than who He is. And so by golly, what I need is who he's going to be. God will not be tamed. The lion will not wear a leash. You will not put him on a chain. You will not make him your puppet. He is your creator. He is your sustainer. He is your Savior, and He roars forth from Zion. You talk about turning the world upside down. It is He that commands our being and our destiny, not we that would command His. He replaced God with His own vision and His own version of what He needed and wanted God to be. 1 Kings chapter 12 Beginning in verse 29, he set one in Bethel and the other had put in Dan. This thing became a sin to the people, for they went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on the high places and appointed priests from among, of pe- among the people who were not of the Levites. I mean, look, once you're going to throw the one true God out the door, why do you care about his rules anyway? And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, nothing like a solid counterfeit. And he offered sacrifices on the altars, and so he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made, and he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. He made this what he needed it to be. The month that he devised from his own heart and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. And the result is nothing less than judgment. In chapter 13, verse 1 
through 4, we see the now and the not yet. There is judgment coming right now for Jeroboam. The fullness is yet to come. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings, and the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him, and his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw it back to himself. Now, buddy, that's a prophecy right there. This thing's coming down, and the bones of you men that have participated in it are going to be burned on it when it does. Jeroboam is going to, hey, man, it's been, you know, pretty, pretty capable guy so far. Seize him. Nope. Literally beef jerky. If you look at the Hebrew, it's literally what it means. Just went, sucked all the water right out of her. Did Jeroboam repent? Did he come running to the Lord trembling? No. Because he's not his child. In verse 33, after this, King Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. Anyone who would, he ordained to be a priest of the high places. And this thing became a sin to the house of Jeroboam so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. Man, there is something about the entrenched rebellion of replacing God with a version of the God that you quote-unquote need him to be that is so entrenched that when the word of God comes and destroys the illusion that you've been holding on to about this caricature of what God is, people will walk away from that destruction and turn around and rebuild the exact same delusion they started with. doesn't matter what the word of the Lord says. They will look at it and walk away. I had a guy one time that I was, that I was trying to guide through some really, really poor doctrine as it concerned the return of Christ. And he had some really harebrained ideas. And one of them was just like, proof text, sorry, you're wrong. Right? Like, there it is. Like, there. Like, you said it's this way, and Scripture says it's this way. And he looked at it and went, oh, God can work that out. Yeah, God can work it out. He can do it exactly the way his word says he's going to do it. That's how he's going to work it out. There is something that is more insidious about this creating the Elohim, creating the Yahweh that we want him and need him to be that is more entrenched than simple, old-fashioned, demonic paganism. God hates it more 
it gets its barbs in deeper. Man, people will fight you on this stuff now. It gets its barbs in deeper and the ensuing violence of judgment that comes out of it is exponentially worse because it is exponentially more offensive to the heart of God that you think, oh humans, that you can come up with a better version of Him than He already is. He hardens His heart. Forget about not having Levi's. I'll just take anybody. Anybody want to be a priest? We'll set you up. The final word is that all the kingdom of Israel will be given up because of this particular sin. Not because of a conglomeration of sins, though there is going to be a conglomeration of sins. The reason that God is roaring from Zion, the content of the book of Amos, and many more, against the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, is because of this sin. Not a whole bunch of others, it's because of this one. This very one. This thing that he did is the reason that Amos is nine chapters of judgment, judgment, judgment. It's in 1 Kings chapter 14. In verse 7, Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, And yet you have not been like my servant David who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes, but you have done evil. You have done evil above all who were before you. Now think about that for a minute because Solomon did a bunch of evil. Saul, a bunch of evil. Saul entertained a necromancer, folks. And he says, man, you've done more than all of them. This one thing. You have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. But he is not done just by pronouncing judgment on the king. For as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. He continues in verse 14. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today. And henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of its good land that he gave to her fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned and made Israel to sin. He's going to tear them up by the roots, folks. 
Why? Well, they're guilty of a lot. But the reason he's doing it is because the sin of Jeroboam and the way that he drew the people of Israel into that sin. Back to Amos. 150 years later, all this happens 150 years before the earthquake, give or take. You can give it three or four years in either direction. But 150 years, a century and a half before the earthquake, all of this went down with Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and the kingdom was divided. Why? Because of sin. And the pronouncement was made that judgment was coming because of the particular sin of Jeroboam that he led the people of Israel into. And yet, 150 years later, if you continue reading through First and Second Kings, if you continue reading through First and Second Chronicles, where you'll find a lot of the history there as well, 150 years later, the kingdom of Israel still stands. And relative to its neighbors around it, it's actually prospered pretty well. Militarily, it's been a lot stronger than the kingdom of Judah. It's a lot larger. They got a lot more troops to begin with. But I mean, as far as worldly standards go especially during this time in the ancient Near East, I mean, Israel's done okay for the last century and a half. Certainly doesn't seem to look like the ruin that was foretold. And yet during this time they continued in their sin. They even perfected it. For in the absence of the one true and holy God, who is by default the standard of all righteousness, The evil at the heart of this sin has crept in like cancer and manifested itself in every aspect of the national life. So let me me paraphrase that for you. When, When you take God, who is the standard of righteousness, who His character is the defining line between right and wrong, And you replace him with a God that you want and think that you need out of your own mind and say, this is that God. It's not that this is another God and here is the true God and then we can compare the two and see which one comes up lacking, but this is that God. This is the true God. This thought of my own mind, some of it even aligns with Scripture. I can open the words and tell you some stuff like, guys, you can't murder. It says, thou shalt not murder. That's against God's will. Besides, it destabilizes the society. We need no murder. So that's this is the true God. We can even look to some Scripture to point those things out, but it's not the true God. It's the God of my own imagination, the God that I need Him, that I want Him to be. Once you do that, you have replaced the standard of righteousness with nothing more than the standard of your own mind. By definition, if this God is the one that you create out of your own mind, that you perceive, that you need, and you want Him to be, then your own mind just became the standard of righteousness. It will affect everything. And it did. It crept into their politics. Oh man, the Bible talks about politics. It crept into their politics. It manifested itself in greed that ran roughshod over their neighbors 
He created the subversion of justice to the point where there was no justice. They trampled the poor. They participated in witchcraft. They killed their infants in an attempt to make their lives go better. And they grabbed a hold of every single demonic god they would encounter. All because they replaced the one true God with a lie. As Paul would later write in Romans chapter 1 verse 21, For although they knew God, and buddy, these folks did. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts was darkened. Friends, God doesn't forget His word. It doesn't matter that it was 150 years ago from Rehoboam and Jeroboam and all that went on there when he said, I'm going to dig you up by the roots. It doesn't matter that it was 150 years ago. God is faithful. God doesn't forget. And now, two years before the earthquake, during the reign of Jeroboam I's namesake, Jeroboam II, you got to love a little poetry. During the reign of Jeroboam's namesake comes the roar that necessarily accompanies the violence to follow. For just 40 years after Amos writes, in 722 B.C., the necessary violence indeed follows. The event is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 17 in 2 Kings chapter 17 in verse 6 through 8 in the ninth year of Hoshea the king of Assyria captured Samaria. Samaria is northern Israel. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the and on the harbor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because of the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel and the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced. He continues in verse 16. It says, They abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves, they made the Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven and served Baal. They burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and he removed them out of his sight. None of them was left but the tribe of Judah only. And Judah also did not keep the commandments of their Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until they had cast them out of his sight. And when he had torn Israel from the house of David, 
They made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king, and Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not repent of them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight as he had spoken by his servants, the prophets. And so Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. And that last statement was not only accurate when it was written, it is still accurate right now. Judah will come back from exile. The ten tribes of northern Israel are gone. Nobody knows who they are. They don't even know who they are. Only God himself knows. Okay, I know we're running late, but we have to finish this. What do you do with this? We have to finish it because if you don't, if you don't get what's going on here, man, Amos is just one punch in the teeth after the other. I mean, that's all it is. I mean, it's just going to be, you know, three, four months of just judgment if you don't understand what's going on and how to respond. What do you do with this? Okay, well, the first thing you do is fear. Real straightforward. When the Lord roars, the wicked harden their hearts like Jeroboam did. But when the Lord roars, his children come trembling. That's what we do. So the very first thing you do is fear. Remember what Hosea said in chapter 11, verse 10. They shall go after the Lord and he will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. What do you do with this? Well, when you read Amos, the first thing you do is fear. That's okay. I don't care what they told you in Sunday school. The fear of the Lord does not mean simply reverent awe. It does not mean respect. It means fear. Reverence does not cause one to tremble. Fear does. It's okay. Fear the Lord. It's a good thing. If you're His, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you should really consider becoming His so you can know what I'm talking about. Like, this is okay. Fearing the Lord is okay. It's both awesome and fearful and good all at the same time. Fear the Lord, man. This is what his children do. As a matter of fact, in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? Have some fear of the Lord. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, if you take that from kind of a cultural Christianity point of view, you okay, well, I'm supposed to fear the Lord, and when I read Amos, you know, because I get up every morning, I'm a double-shot latte, and I have my quiet time. You know, and I need something that, you know, is occasionally at least uplifting. Right? And so, but, but if I read Amos, I try to read Amos during my quiet time, and all it ever does is just, it's so judgy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It's real judgy. He's the judge. He is just. Praise God, he's the justifier. Let me tell you something. In Amos, you don't see a lot of justifier. What you see is a lot of judgment. Say, so living under the word of God means just nothing but fear and dread? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The first thing you should do is fear when you read Amos. The second thing you should do is hope. You should hope because even in the midst of horrific judgment... 
there is a glimmer of God's grace. In Amos chapter 9, verse 10 through 12, he says, All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword. Those who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will rise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and that all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. In the midst, I mean, there are nine chapters of judgment, friends, without one drop of relief until right there at the end. You say, well, man, I wish it was kind of more spread around in there. I know you do. Faith is the hope of things not seen. I know you do. I do too. Friends, the reality is, if you just exegete Amos, quite frankly, if you just exegete the mass majority of the Old Testament, you will have people both from pew and pulpit come to you concerned because they think the sermons are out of balance. Too much judgment, not enough grace. I wonder to myself if the Holy Spirit thought it was out of balance when he inspired Amos to preach it and write it. God is gracious. Even in the midst of judgment, this is hope. This is faith. The hope of things not seen. Do you have it or not? I mean, i got to ask myself, when I'm reading through this and it's judgment after judgment and you start getting kind of, you know, your, your wick starts getting wet a little bit and you get kind of down in the dumps, you got to ask yourself, Brian, are you the kind of guy that needs to be spoon-fed hope or do you have it? Do you need it like the little baby where you, here comes the airplane, we'll scoop it off your lip and go again, or do you have hope? Because if you have it, and faith is the hope of things unseen, then I really only need God to give it to me once. Now, praise God, He gives it to us a lot more than once. It's everywhere in this thing. But guys, there's places where the prophet looks and he sees a word that is a person. And the word that he sees is that person roaring forth from Zion. The word that Amos saw. You say, how do I hope in this? Okay, here it is. The word that Amos saw was Christ in his gospel. And I don't just mean that the way that I mean it, generally speaking, of all of the scripture. And I do mean it that way. I mean, Christ said, you search them because you think in them is eternal life. They speak about me, he says, right? So generally we know that, but I'm talking specifically. The word that Amos saw is specifically Christ and the gospel. And the reason that I know that is because James confirms that the fact that the Gentiles are receiving salvation was the result of the judgment and hardening that came upon Israel leading to their destruction. And he does it at the very first Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. In the book of Acts in chapter 15, I promise I'm almost done. In Acts chapter 15, verse 11, you know the, the background here. 
The gospel has come to the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit has come upon the Gentiles. And all these Gentiles are getting saved. And all these Jews want to know, Jewish Christians want to know what they're supposed to do about that. And they're having this meeting. And in verse 11, we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree... Prophets, plural, agree, just as it is written. And guess who James uses as his proof text? But Amos chapter 9. Just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and that all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What do you do with the book of Amos? The first thing you do is fear, and the second thing you do is rejoice. Because what you're seeing What Amos saw was nothing less than the gospel of Jesus Christ whose destruction of Israel because of the hardness of their heart and their scattering to the far corners of the globe has resulted in the day in which the Gentiles, you and me, are being saved. In that you should rejoice in hope. For Paul said in Romans chapter 5, through him we have also obtained access by faith. He's writing to a bunch of Gentiles. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice. Do you remember from Romans? Literally we boast, we boast in hope for the glory of God. And so on one hand you say fear and the flesh says, you mean all that the Christian life is supposed to be is a bunch of fear and dread in God? No. On the other hand you say rejoice. You say okay. So then we're supposed to rejoice and boast for the grace that has come to us and just, you know, disregard the fact that for that to happen, judgment had to come on Israel where they were scattered and condemned for now on 2,750 years. Seems a little callous, don't it? Man, what do you think about Amos? I'm rejoicing in hope. Why are you rejoicing in hope? Because Israel took it on the chin so Gentiles like me could be saved. It's a great day. You know what Paul says about that attitude? Not being. Speaking on this very topic in Romans 11, 11, So I ask then, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Not being. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Friends, Paul's heart broke for the lostness of his brothers according to the flesh. His heart broke for the lostness of Israel. In Romans chapter 9, verse 1, he said, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And then he turns right around 
and he rejoices, he boasts in hope with the Gentiles that are saved because they were cut off. As a matter of fact, we can say this, in his heart's breaking and rejoicing in both, not one or the other, but in Paul's heart, both breaking and rejoicing is the means by which the elect are being saved. That's why he writes and says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some. Romans 11, 13 through 14. Paul says, my methodology in the ministry is this. My heart is breaking for the fact that they were obstinate in their sin and were destroyed. My heart is breaking that they are hardened. My heart is simultaneously rejoicing that out of that hardening has come the salvation of you Gentiles. And I'm not going to sacrifice one for the other. You Gentiles are not worth so much to me that it would cause me to be indifferent to the suffering of my brothers. And yet the salvation that is in you is so valuable that the suffering of my brothers is not able to quench my joy in it. Instead, magnifying the joy and the grace of God that has come to you will produce jealousy in them that perhaps some may be saved. So how do you deal with Amos when you know the word that he saw is nothing less than Jesus Christ and it's a whole lot of judgment for Israel and a little glimmer of hope that Gentiles like me and you might be born again. How do you deal with that? Here's how you deal with it. Don't be a simpleton. Don't be a simpleton. Be a complex being with a complex heart. God made you where you are capable of experiencing more than one emotion in a moment. This kind of stuff, friends, understand in Amos leaves the um, eight-color primary box of crayons, it leaves that thing in the dust. Friends, you are being conformed in sanctification to a God who has a complex heart. To a God who can simultaneously glory in the holiness of His justice and the righteous execution thereof and find no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. You are talking about a God who according to His own will roared forth a message that would with great intention He saw what He said about Jeroboam. This circumstance occurred. Because it was the Lord's will for it to occur. You're talking about a God that in anger for sin will cut off a people and then be broken in heart for the fact that they were cut off. Who will simultaneously then turn to Gentiles that did not seek Him and seek them. Glory in the salvation that He has in them and then turn around and use that to provoke jealousy in the Jew that they too together might be saved. You are being conformed into the image of a complex God. Don't be a simpleton. Be a complex being. 
God made you where you can feel more than one way about a particular thing at once. Do it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, Paul said, Rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. Friends, if you're going to do that, you have to be a complex being. There is constantly at this moment those that are weeping and those that are rejoicing, and we are told to be with them in both, not in one or the other. Not rejoice on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, and weep on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and take Sunday off, but to do both. Rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep, for both spring from the will of God. Rejoice over your salvation, Gentiles, and weep for Israel that was cut off. Weep over Jerusalem. Jesus did. He weeped over Jerusalem when he was getting ready to walk to the cross to save you. He weeped over Jerusalem when he looked the apostles in the eyes when they asked him why he always spoke to them in parables but to the apostles so plainly. And he said, because for you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but from them it has been hidden so that they will fall and be destroyed. And then he turned around and wept over them. How do you respond to Amos? With the heart of God. Weep with those that weep. Mourn with those that mourn. Rejoice with those that rejoice and boast with those that boast. Weep for Israel. Jesus did. For indeed the judgment of sin is at hand. There's the introduction. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, your word is deep. It is heavy. It requires more of us both intellectually and emotionally than often we can muster. And so, Father, we pray that you would be with us and that you would do and create in us that which you require. And we ask all of that for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.